Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast that inspires confident preaching and teaching from the Hebrew Bible. I'm Rosie Candlethal, a PhD candidate at Emory University. And I'm Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. Our incomparable co-host, Tim McNinch, is off this week. The first reading for March 20th, 2022 is Isaiah 55, 1 through 9, one of my favorite passages in the Hebrew Bible, and I've said that before, but I'll say it again on this podcast. And I'm even more excited to talk about this this week because we have a special guest with us to help us work through the passage. That's right. We're grateful to welcome to our Zoom studio, Dr. Roger Nam. Dr. Nama is professor of Hebrew Bible and director of the Graduate Department of Religion at Emory University, and that is home base and training ground for Rachel, Tim, and me. So we're really proud to have our own Dr. Nam. His research focuses on the social structures and economics uh, behind wealth and poverty in the biblical world. Today's passage from Isaiah 55 is full of economic imagery, so we're especially glad to have Roger's expertise and insight for this conversation. He's the author of Portrayals of Exchange in the Book of Kings, and he's got a number of book projects in the pipeline, including commentaries multiple on Ezra and Nehemiah, and he's also editing the Oxford Handbook for Wealth and Poverty. Besides his own busy research, teaching, and admin tasks, Roger's also passionate about his role as a teacher and mentor to students and learners of all kinds. He's a contributor to Working Preacher, We Love Them, <laughs> and a frequent collaborator with the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning. You can find him there on podcasts because he's no stranger to this world. You can check him out there. Roger's also lived a rich life. He's a former economic analyst and a second-generation Korean-American who's lived and worked abroad in Korea. Dr. Nam, a hearty welcome to First Reading. Thanks for having me here. And Rachel, if this is one of your favorite passages, what am I doing here? Like, why? <laughs> why? You're, you're, here, you're here to rein me in when I just okay. want to sit in all the fun of it. You're here to be like, well, maybe that's not what the text says. God, well, I don't think, okay, I got it, got it. Can do. Also, uh, she says that a lot. <laughs> I do. I She's got many, a lot of favorites. Many favorites. It's true. I have many <laughs> children and I love them all. Um, no, it's but it's so good to have you on for this conversation. Maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about your decision to leave such a lucrative career for a less lucrative one, being a professor of right. Hebrew Bible. I obviously was not a very good financial analyst if I chose <laughs> to leave that to become a biblical studies professor. Yeah, right. uh, there was, uh, so I was an analyst in the 90s, and this was in the Silicon Valley, but it just, for me, it wasn't meaningful. Uh, there was a moment where my partner just asked me, if you could have success in anything, what would you do? Now, I had been a pastor. I'd gotten an MDiv. I'd worked as an analyst for, this was my fourth year as an analyst. And just on a whim, I said, I think I would have been a Bible professor. I think wow. I would have enjoyed that. And I think I would have been pretty good. And then she asked me, well, well why don't you do that? And then I said, well, okay. And I quit my job. <laughs> and after seven short years of full-time graduate study, I got my first uh, full-time job at George Fox. And Wow. Yeah. Well, and, and it sounds like, too, that your past experience shaped your reality as a professor with your, I'm assuming at least your emphasis on wealth and poverty was really shaped by your time in the corporate world. Is right. that accurate? Or? Yeah. So I, I remember interviewing for my analyst job. Uh, I was interviewing with the CFO who was like 33, and this was a $400 million company that became $2 billion by the time I left. Oh, my gosh. And it was a manufacturing company. We did semiconductors, analog semiconductors, 
And even though I wasn't an engineer, I remember that interview and he told me this company is run through finance and really the values and the decisions of this company are driven by economic concerns. And that always stayed with me. And so when I entered the field of biblical studies, I thought about the assumptions that we have on economies, how they're really shaped by modern capitalist notions in a modern society that's monetized, which is very different from the ancient world. And so I always Mm -hmm. remember even within economic study and histories of Israel, we make assumptions and we're not even aware of those assumptions. And so I think they're worthy to be interrogated and to think through and to be named. And I think a lot of that has to do with a lot of the language in Isaiah 55. Like what are we assuming and what do we need to correct as we read some of this rich economic imagery in Isaiah 55. So I'm talking about assumptions too. I mean, you are Korean American um, and I am an Indian American. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine the decision to go from financial analyst to Hebrew Bible professor might have been mixed up with culture as well. I wonder if you could just tell us something about the experiences of living and working in different cultures and maybe how that's also affected your outlook on the Hebrew Bible. Right. So, you know, as a fellow Asian American, Rosie, you know, we only have three professions that we're allowed to do. There's doctor, lawyer, and failure. There's no other profession. Those are the only three that we can do. And so uh, even though I grew up in a Christian household and my parents were um, attending church very regularly and very involved, you know, you could imagine some of the conflict when a child wants to grow up and go into ministry. And so I did enter ministry. I decided to go to seminary in Korea. Even though I'm second generation, I thought it would be very good for me to learn um, theology from a different culture. I was just, I just really wanted to learn Korean language. And Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I like to tell the students, I'm not, I'm not really that embarrassed about it, but I got an F in my first Old Testament class and I got a C minus in my first Hebrew class. But what happened for me is as I was learning Hebrew very poorly, I was also learning Korean in a more profound way. And and it was such an incredible experience. The more I learned the Korean language, I felt the better access I had to culture, to understanding in, you know, the way I would for why my mom was so weird growing up, because I think (laughs) language helps refract culture. And it's the way that we have access to cultures beyond our own. And so the more I got fluent in Korean, the more I could understand my mom's culture. And at the same time, I was learning Greek and Hebrew for the first time. And as someone who loved the Bible, I I understood the access that Greek and Hebrew got to me in the world of the biblical text. And and that was what kind of set me off on this journey to be super interested in biblical languages and biblical texts. That is fascinating. I mean, I, I wish I could just distill that story and bring it to every seminarian and be like, this is why we teach you Greek and Hebrew, because it's it's um, a great story. I will say it didn't feel great to get an F. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, but in hindsight, yeah, it's a very romantic, beautiful story. But yeah, I, I that, it's not hyperbole. I failed that class. And obviously, God was calling me to become an Old Testament professor with that 1.6 GPA in in Bible. <laughs> This is awesome. And I I literally could just sit and listen to your stories all day, but we should probably get to our reading for the day. Roger, would you mind reading the text for us? And would you let us know which translation? Yeah, absolutely. I'll read from Isaiah 55, 1 through 9, and this will be from the NRSV. Great, thanks. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, 
and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that you do not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Thanks, Roger, for that reading. Let's start with our maybe usual introduction and background to the passage. Mm-hmm. Um, so Isaiah 55 concludes the message of the prophet known as Second Isaiah, right? But let's back up a minute. Um, and can you give our listeners a down and dirty introduction to the structure of Isaiah and its different parts? Have you found particular ways that are helpful for folks to understand first, second, and third Isaiah? Yeah, basically in biblical scholarship in the 19th century, this guy named Doom said, hey, uh, there isn't one Isaiah, there are actually three. And so he divided this based on the text. And he wasn't out to like create this big deconstruction of the historicity. But if you read Isaiah, you have the same general themes, but set at different contexts. One, uh, during the Assyrian invasion of the 8th century. Two, after the destruction of Jerusalem, but before the restoration of the temple. And the third Isaiah, when the temple has in fact been restored. And Isaiah 55 is the last chapter of what's historically been the second Isaiah. Yeah, I I like how you talked about the themes that are consistent throughout these three Isaiahs, uh, but refracted through three different historical contexts. Because second Isaiah is really attentive to international affairs and, and global movements as the context for divine activity. So do you have a suggestion or a theory about what brings about this really global and larger emphasis right. in Second Isaiah? Yeah, so I think so much of the Bible and so much of the book of Isaiah is really brought to us when they foreground this one experience of the exile. The exile is so mm-hmm. important. And those of us that are firsthand familiar with immigrant life growing up, uh, any sort of forced migration has a complete totalizing impact on just the way you live, on everything, mm-hmm. on your your family and cultural adjustment, your language, your economics. And so I think, Rachel, this um, attention towards the international, you have to think what that means in the context of a forced migration. So you have mm-hmm. uh, a people from Judah that have been captured by the Babylonians. Their city was destroyed and a group of them were sent and forced to live in Babylon. And they took on Babylonian names and they learned new languages and they struggled for identity. And at some point, there's some hope that they'll return to Jerusalem. But if they return, this is a tiny, tiny group 
in this vast empire of um, Babylonians. And they're just one of many polities and ethnicities that are trying to struggle for their own identity. And so when you hear this like kind of heightened language, as you do in Isaiah 55 about nations, you have to consider this from the context of a small, weaker nation that's in danger of not existing anymore, that's going to be um, kind of a pawn in the orbit of Mm. empire. Well, I mean, I think that's so helpful to lift up, and that's almost our first preaching pitfall. Reading this text from the perspective of an American who is not that small, weaker nation at the whim of a larger empire, but we are the larger empire itself, um, to read this text communally requires us to maybe pause a little bit and and think through some of those dynamics. Yeah, you know, like purely if you look at Babylon and Judah and you look at the current situation, America is actually the better analog for Babylon. And so I think this text causes us to really question ourselves, what are the ways that we are oppressive uh, within our own wealth and privilege. And mm-hmm. um, remember this really powerful message for Judah. It's to a very weak nation that is in the danger of no longer existing, which, which certain other countries that happened, as we know from history. And so to take that and to, to platform it on America, which is really wealthy and powerful on the global scale, I think it is definitely a preaching pitfall. And in fact, one great preaching thing is to identify uh, that shift. It's a traditional narrative that we talk about Isaiah and the cause of America. And I think it's a great preaching move to say, wait a second, what if we were Babylon? And in fact, here's mm-hmm. the reasons why we might be Babylon and what implications that has to us as Bible mm-hmm. readers and communities of faith to steward mm-hmm. that level of abundance. Mm-hmm. The other, I mean, the other thing that's fascinating about this too, that I never really thought about until I was preparing for this episode was the economic mm-hmm. implications of what's going on here. I mean, in verse one is almost kind of confusing. Even mm. if you have no money, come buy food. You know, there's there's like an economic transaction that's being acknowledged. It can't happen, but is also invited to happen at right. the same time. So w- what do we need to understand about commerce and financial systems and economy of the ancient times to understand what's going on here. Sure. So if this text is indeed dated to the exilic period, the late exilic period, like 540, money hasn't been invented yet. And so mm. when you see the translation in RSV, it's, it's literally silver and they translate it as money. The first yeah. coin is not even going to appear in Judah for another 140 years. And there's a lot of debate whether coinage is actually money. And in fact, a lot of people think it's not. Coinage is much more symbolic because it's so rare until you get to the Greco-Roman era. And so when it says, and you that have no money, it's really you that have no silver. Come by and eat, come by without silver and without price. The other thing that's confusing is price. Like if you have no money, you wouldn't have price. And in fact, uh, price is more, you could think about it as equivalency. So like value, those that don't have the silver and those that do not have the value of what this necessitates. And so you think about this period, you don't have the invention of money yet, but you do have a very impoverished economy that has been uprooted. So again, think about forced migration, which I think foregrounds all of this. In a kinship structure before the exile, you lived on your father's household, which is your grandfather's household, which was also your great-grandfather's household. You lived off their land in a largely subsistence economy. You had diversified agriculture to maintain yourself, and the the best resource was the land. And if something happened, you had a social net, which was your kin. So think about how much the Bible talks about kinship, 
about brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. You have a duty towards those on your kin. Well, what happens during a forced exile? You're actually disrupting you know, the kinship structures, so you no longer have that asset to resources. So what I see in Isaiah 55 is almost a polemic against the economic system that's emerging, which is oh. disembedded, which does not have kinship. And in this system, uh, remember it begins like, you who thirst come to the waters, and then it ramps up to wine and milk. So you need water yeah. to subsist yourself, and wine and milk is like a luxury beyond that. Like, not only are you here to get your basic needs met, but we're going to overflow, again, the prophetic hyperbole. And so what I'm thinking is, within the kinship of God, you will be provided not just water, but wine and milk. You do not need the silver. You do not need to have the equivalencies of what these are worth to enjoy these things. That is fascinating. So this is not a market that the prophet's inviting the reader to. He's inviting the reader to a feast, some sort right. of banquet, right? Ah. So there's some rich imagery here of, you know, sumptuous food and wine, delight yourself, right? Um, and so I'm wondering if there's some ways we could think about that theme here as well. So not just market, but connected to food and nourishment and taking true delight. And so he's turning something around. Right. I think, um, yeah, I think the feast imagery is really strong. And I think that's rejecting the market industry. So there's a verse in Lamentations 5.4 where you buy water, and which we do today. Uh, but think about you don't do this in a subsistence economy. You know, you collect the yeah. rainwater. And so you buy water in a more monetized type economy. And so I think this is rejecting that and going back to a socially embedded economy, which is, you know, you, you make values and decisions on distribution based on kinship structures. And so a feast is more akin. And so in verse two, like it's basically setting that the kesef, the silver that you earn is not doing anything. You're not even buying food. You're not even satisfying. Why are you spending the silver? Why are you doing this late labor? Um, listen carefully to me. Uh, delight yourself. So it's almost promising something that will truly satisfy even beyond subsistence, mm. this displaced um, wow. economy because of their forced migrations. I have so many thoughts right now. I, this isn't just a call to change the way you spend money. It's a, it's a call to change the way you eat and to change right. the way you are in community. And I just think of like, Uber Eats and not, you know, not to right. necessarily like negate that because I think for many people, especially in the middle of the pandemic, that was a really productive way to mm -hmm. uh, support a local economy and uh, for parents to continue sure. to have your children and feed them too. Um, but just this idea of like when we host people at our table, right. which is much closer to like that kinship mentality what sort of a meal do we have? What sort of satisfaction do we come away with when we have that community experience versus just buying food and eating it? Right. Well, think about how they created meals, even in antiquity. And so the estimate is 75% of what people ate was from grain. And to do that, you actually had to grind for hours a day. But you would do yeah. that in community with other women that are also grinding yeah. and making meals for the day. There were shared ovens. We know this from, you know, domestic archaeology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, heat is actually really expensive to do. Wood is not a very efficient burner. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to bake bread, you would all do it with other households. So it's a communal activity to create the food. Mm -hmm. And then, again, to share it with one another. So it's not just satisfying your hunger. But there is when it says, which does not satisfy, I think it implies in a feast, 
you're going to belong to a community, we're going to eat together, and we're going to share our resources. The silver that you gain will not satisfy you. But this yeah. subsistence-level communal kinship-based sharing of meals and banqueting, that is what truly satisfies. That's such a message yeah. for today where I think yeah. eating alone has become so commonplace right. that you just sort of, um, and particularly in the pandemic, right, where eating together has become a much more risky endeavor yeah. mm -hmm. um, and you only do it with maybe your closest, your pod. Right, uh, right. And I mean, we're in a season where this is actually kind of feels a little painful. It feels nostalgic in a way that perhaps... Mm might be a preaching moment right now because yeah. what second Isaiah is trying to reach toward is that that memory of maybe eating together where that has been lost perhaps during this period right. of displacement. And even like, and that, don't get me wrong, I actually love eating by myself because I get to eat what I want and eat all of it too. I don't have to share with anyone. But, do, you have, do, you, uh, do you have children, Roger? <laughs> of course I do. Yes. That's, so that's why I eat fast. I have to, you know, uh, but you can also think about what it symbolizes. And so I think yeah. in certain cultures, there aren't individual plates, there are shared plates. And what that yeah. symbolizes where you're actually both eating from the same thing and being nourished by the same thing. Um, certain foods are very labor intensive. And so literally you're eating the labor of someone in care that's spending all this resource and energy to sustain you. And there's something about the symbolism behind food. And actually I think churches can grasp on that today. Uh, even mm -hmm. as I direct the PhD students at Emory, um, I know if I just spend a little bit of money on bagels and donuts, it's going to lead to a better converse. There's something about sustenance together yeah. that enriches the community that opens conversation. So if you look at a lot of the immigrant churches in America, which are flourishing, I mean, the biggest UMC church in the South is Korean. The biggest Presbyterian church in the South is Korean. Church mm -hmm. was not like a one hour in and out thing back in the day. I mean, it was an all day thing. And there was a fully operational kitchen at the church that operated every Sunday. It was, it was part of their life. It just brings me so many places in the New Testament, which is, I know, ironic for me to be going there. But I'm just thinking of Jesus saying, I am the bread of the world mm -hmm. or, you know, to have abundant life. Like, what does it mean to have abundant life as it's connected to having an abundant meal. And of course, you know, we always have to name as well the gender aspect sure. that has to come from that, which is typically it's female labor that leads to these right. meals or traditionally it has been. So how is that labor then spread out in the community so that not just so that it's not just one group doing it, but so that everyone gets to take part in the production, right. that, that pleasure of the production. So you mentioned this like diachronic space, and I'm wondering if we could insert this little bit of David here, if yeah. you could say something about where, how does David's covenant yes. uh, play up in here? And didn't the disasters of, you know, the exile discredit this everlasting covenant to David? So what's what's going on yeah, in these verses? That, that's, you know, I, I did notice this right away. Like, that's weird. What's David doing here? And so... Mm -hmm. I think this is the only time David appears in the second and third Isaiah. Right. So you have two memories of David. You have one in Chronicles where David is so amazing and just the great idealized king and can do no wrong. Uh, a lot of things with like Bathsheba are out of Chronicles. So David is this memory of the perfect king. And then in other texts like Ezra and Nehemiah, you have like almost no mention of David in Isaiah, you know, at least the second and third Isaiah are similar. And so what I think this is, so it was really curious to me, but I think what it's doing, I would guess there's an attempt that you're attaching all this abundance 
to the covenant. So you're you're trying to draw a connection oh. of sharing in this goodness, which is a return to the older method of economic distribution, kinship based and not based on accumulation oh. of silver. And that it's being tied to this everlasting covenant that God is doing in the line of David. I think that makes a lot of sense in part because what it draws me to is the picture of David in the Psalms where mm. he's neither the ambiguously powerful character that he was in First and Second Samuel, nor is he the triumphant character that he was in Chronicles, mm. but he's this like penitent. He's this, this humble, you know, that almost exclusively the Psalms that have the superscription of David are where he's like running for his life mm. and begging for God mm -hmm. to help. So I'm uh, almost wondering if that's drawing from that picture of him. I think that's a great and, analogy. This is a good preaching moment. Like get people to think about hunger that you've experienced and how much mm -hmm. it impacts you and your emotions and yeah. uh, your ability to do things when you have hunger. And now imagine that if that was on your children and your family, you know, what kind of panic and loss of hope. And all of a sudden in the midst of that, you get this invitation repeated, and then you get this tie to the everlasting covenant with David. It's a very vulnerable place where you're invited to something bigger, which I think makes a great analogy with the use of the superscriptions to David in the Psalter. Okay, but then there's verse five, right? Uh, and so it flips from this maybe moment of uh, vulnerability uh, and memory and nostalgia to, to maybe something that moves into this area of you know national supremacy, some sort of mm -hmm. some sort of triumphalism that that's there in in its in Israel's relationship right. to the nations. Yeah, so I think with David you get a turn, and so I'm kind of watching the structure. You get the end of verse three my steadfast, sure love for David. And then it starts to see, see things. So I think it's starting to turn. And I think it's so important, like we said earlier, to remember this is towards an impoverished, tiny, weak polity mm. that is on, like all likelihood should disappear from the planet. It should disappear in the wake of this gigantic Persian empire that's going to take over everyone. And so you just cannot contextualize this to the United States. You need to think about almost a more tribal polity that has mm. complete weakness. And so what I think it's doing is like, not only can you attach this satisfaction to the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, but it's going to be great. And they're using this language that wouldn't make sense to them, but would bring some hope upon them, like a commander for the peoples, nations shall run to you. And then in verse five, it goes to that name, uh, the Holy One of Israel. Now that is, I think, what unifies all of Isaiah. Like that phrase is actually pretty unknown outside of Isaiah, but you see it throughout the book of Isaiah, the first, second, and third Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel. Because we are, I am a holy God, and because you have a relationship with me that's covenantal, then you can trust me. And even everything around you just is, there's poverty, and there's, and we're in the midst of these big empire with great armies that we just cannot fight against. We're at their mercy. Know that because of the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And think about how unbelievable that would be for someone mm -hmm. impoverished, but now being said by the prophet Isaiah, then I think that's where we really need to understand this particular verse and not in this nationalistic, um, mm -hmm. we're going to take over the world type thing. I think that's a very dangerous interpretation. And as we know from history, it's a very 
Um, not a very responsible interpretation of this text. I, I just had a thought. So I was kind of thinking through my my time as a pastor when I, I was often preaching to very, very small congregations in very, very small towns mm-hmm. that were were dying. I mm-hmm. mean, they're just they were built along a railroad every 10 miles to sustain the railroad. And then the railroad got removed and a highway uh, got built a mile north okay. and towns started to grow up there. And so these little towns just a mile south of these highways were just their their literally their raison d'être their reason for living was was totally gone and and it's just like a very slow painful decline so that kind of made me go there of of these little little places um hearing this message but the other thing that i thought was if we're if we're running with the initial suggestion that you made Roger about preaching this as if we were Babylon, then we are the nation running to someone. We are the nation who is seeing God's presence in someone tiny, in someone humble, and are drawn to that and want to come and find out who the God of that nation is. So to kind of flip it like that could be a really fun preaching move. Oh, for sure. That's a great analogy. Like, so I grew up in big cities, so I only know this nostalgically through media, these small towns. I lived in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seoul, Korea. Oh, wow. Uh, and, And so, but I could see that move homiletically in terms of, you know, you grow up and you have this poverty, you have all these things taken from you. And even having the wealthy and the rich run to you because you're the one that God has glorified, even though it doesn't seem like that because they did build yeah. this highway that bypasses your town all of a sudden, even though everyone's leaving, there are no jobs, there's no income, but God is the one who has glorified you. That can be a very powerful moment on the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the very next verse in six is seek the Lord. What if you could say something about that call there and that turn rhetorically from exaltation and hope in the glorification mm-hmm. that might come around the corner and then just a moment of humility here where seek the Lord. Yeah. What can you say about that? Yeah. So as I kind of read through this carefully with you and your questions are helping me think through this more to more in depth, I could see the rhetorical buildup up to verse six. So it begins like, you're trying so hard and it's not satisfying you. You know, come to me and it will satisfy you. You see a tie to David, the everlasting covenant, and you see this grand language about nations running to you. And then it comes to verse six and it feels almost like a culmination of this. Like with all this, seek the Lord. You could see how this would different if it would led with verse one, it would have a different mm-hmm. feel. But I feel mm-hmm. like because of this particular situation of being in exile, of being impoverished and in the face of losing their identity, they're building a case of hope. And then it leads up to verse six, seek the Lord while he may be found. If it started with verse one, it might be just too distressing. Like, why would I seek the Lord when all these things are happening around me? But I I see now the rhetorical strategy of one through five, of building it up, carefully tying it to David. And then from verse six, like, it sounds a lot more convincing to me. That's so valuable, right? Because this reading is happening in the middle of Lent, right? So uh, to kind of see the lead up all the way to this call to receive God's abundant mercy, to turn around, to seek while God can be found. Yeah, this is, I mean, the lectionary, uh, you know, there are questions, but this is a good Lent passage. So speaking of the lectionary, they cut it 
after nine, which it seems like if you're talking, you, you've put so much emphasis on the structure of this passage and the momentum of this passage. And it feels like that's just when things start to get rolling. And yeah. I'm not just bitter because they cut off my favorite part of the chapter, but I'm a little bitter because of that. <laughs> but two questions, I guess. If you were to end it at nine, like what might that do to a sermon? And if you were to do something crazy and just keep rolling with it to the gorgeous imagery at the end there, what does that perhaps allow you to do in a sermon that you don't get if you just stop? Yeah, I could see, Rachel, your frustration. I could also see, you know, these poor lectionary writers I and compilers. Know. You know, I know. Uh, they, they never get a break. Um. They never do, <laughs> especially not for me. And I totally, I 100% never would want that job. It's, so yeah. let me just say that. <laughs> Uh, so that is actually great. Like, so verse nine ends with this kind of declaration really of the sovereignty of God. And there's sort of almost this implicit message that, you know, we are just so small a part of creation compared to the great creator. But then from verse 10, um, it goes to this really beautifully imagery. And so I think this takes your consumption of this passage to a much deeper level. Cause as I look at verses 10 through uh, 13. And I think about what it's like. These are farmers. These are people yeah. that live on the land and understand what rain means. You know, there's yeah. at least one scholar who thinks three out of every 10 harvests were nothing in ancient Israel mm. because they depended on the rain so much. And so mm. even with all the work and the ability of land, they had to have the right amount of rain in order yeah. to get a harvest. The snow comes down from heaven making it bring forth and sprout. So in agrarian life, it's super busy, but it's super busy where there's also a lot of contemplation and reflection and observation. So imagine mm. working the land year after year, working it with your parents and then someday working it with your children, or I should say for the women, the children, you know, the ancestors of their husband's house. In all the times you see this little seed become to something that sprouts all the time that you see empty fields become grass, which can then graze your animals, which can then feed you through milk and with clothing and through meat. Uh, all this imagery, I think, is embedded in the natural life cycle of the humans that felt that. And mm -hmm. so I think verses 10 through 13 really help to put the imagery in the heart so people really understand beyond their cognition into their daily experiences. So when they're going on the land, they could actually think about these verses. Uh, they could think about the yeah. idea of giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater and bring that provision alongside God. And I, again, I grew up in the city, you know, I never had a garden or anything, but I could imagine the idea <laughs> of when you plant something and you raise it. And well, I could tell from Instagram, people are so proud of the smallest little zucchini that comes from their balcony. And like, look what I made from this one zucchini. I could imagine that this would be bring great joy and satisfaction, especially in a world without markets, without money, yeah. without access. If you were able to nurture this from your patriarchal land and know that your ancestors have and your progeny will, I could see that could be a very good moment as a, a, a that you would get from these other verses. Oh yeah, I I totally had a different understanding of rain when I became a rural pastor. I mean, uh, I just paid attention to the weather in a way that I had never done before. So. Yeah, and for us like I guess traffic will be heavy cuz it's raining in Atlanta and ooh, we right. can't like <laughs> Right, it's definitely a different view of rain here. Yeah. <laughs> so you've carried us out to, you know, the end of the reading here and I'm wondering if we could 
turn back and let's talk about some preaching pitfalls. We mentioned a couple already, but Roger, Rachel, what do you see as places preachers could get into trouble? One thing I'll say, back to the economic thing, if your greatest resources is land, which it was in a subsistence economy, in a kinship-based subsistence economy, think about what that does with faith. When you invent money, when you have coinage, it allows mm. you the ability, the technology to hoard wealth in ways you can't with land. So even with land, even if you do everything right, you seed it, you plant it, you weed it, you keep away the pestilence, you still depend on God for the rain. You still depend on God for not too much rain and for not mildew or plague to go over the land. You cannot do more than one season at a time. And you're even limited in what you could store for future seasons as well. Like silos of grain were, were a thing. We know that from archaeology. They had silos, but they wouldn't last for perpetuity in ways that like bank accounts or retirement or, you know, index funds will last. So there's a different view of faith that you cannot presume based on today's monetary economy. But the thing with economics is it's so subconscious, we don't even realize it. Like things like even imagine a world where there's no money. We can't, but this was their world. Um, there was no money at this time. And so you had to rely on the land. And so that does a different thing in terms of faith and sustenance and things like that. And the idea that God is providing you have to fight the notion. They literally were not retirement accounts or bank accounts. You cannot store wealth with the efficacy that you can store wealth today. And I think highlighting that brings a lot more to the invitation that God is doing in the opening verses of this passage. The other preaching pitfall that I keep thinking about, and I don't quite know how to articulate this, is that it would be a mistake to romanticize this passage. Mm to romanticize the people, the cultures today that are subsistence or do not have money um, somehow are, are more romantic or more virtuous. I think that would be a mistake because I think what this passage is talking about is a, a structure in society when people took care of each other in a particular way right. and the way that that care for each other was disrupted. So if we were to turn this on to, you know, if you as a pastor dear preachers, are to turn this onto your society, onto your setting. What are the structures that allow people to care for each other? And what are the ways that those structures have been disrupted, perhaps by, um, through greed or through um, insecurity or whatever that might be? I think that's the more appropriate preaching move um, with this text. How about you, Rosie? Yeah, I'm I'm listening to you all and I, I just I, I had come to this conversation with one view of this text and I feel like it's being flipped in ways that are yeah. really important. I keep thinking about the liturgical moment and the romanticizing mm. of fasting during Lent. Oh. Um and so I think there might be some I mean this might be an angle but um for me there's a a romance or what am I going to not do during Lent uh, mm -hmm. that's going to bring me closer to God, right? Um, but there's an invitation here to think about a, a larger relationship that I have with things or with food or with anything that um, that I could put my trust in, mm -hmm. right? So like yeah. when the conversation about the switch from land to perhaps money and the idea of hoarding. Well, during the pandemic, my pantry grew in ways uh, that I <laughs> never imagined, right? So yeah. Um, I think all of us need to think about hoarding mm -hmm. in our um, communities and in our world and in, in what ways 
does the invitation to think of ourselves more communally restore a sense that the things I take are are not just for me, they're also perhaps being yeah. taken away right. from someone. So, yeah. um, you know, that relationship in Lent it, to me is a, it's a real moment for me to rethink um, what do I fast from? What do I feast in? Uh, mm. You know, you know, what are some what are some mm. more appropriate mm-hmm. ways for me to mm-hmm. think about that? Well, and that's a nice transition too to opening up, you know, what are some of the great preaching angles that come out of this text. So either of you, did anything come up of the way you would preach this if you were doing the sermon? As Rosie, as you're talking, made me think about Lent and the romanticization of suffering. God actually is mm-hmm. saying, delight yourself in rich food. Remember, he's saying that to yeah. poor people. He's not saying to Americans. Right. But also, like, God is not against you delighting in re- providing relief yeah. way beyond what you need for those that are experiencing loss. And he's using the analogy and metaphor of food and hunger, but I think it, it could apply very vastly in those that experience such bare loss in, in certain ways that, you know, there's something that God promised you way beyond waters. You know, it's mm-hmm. milk and wine and it's rich food. I keep thinking too that one of the ways uh, one preaching angle might be also this abundant forgiveness of God, which maybe for the exilic people, um, yeah, I'm just thinking about that audience. It might be hard to remember God's mercy um, when there has been so much language in the prophets about the just punishment of God, yet that, you know, something about the displacement uh, was our fault, you know? Yeah. Um, and, Yes, there is a repentance in this passage, you know, seek the Lord, um, turn away from ways that are wicked, uh, but also know that God pardons. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, you know, it's it's an important thing for us to remember that in Lent, it's a moment where we can reset uh, in, in the abundant mercy of God. Mm-hmm. I, I find myself just continually captured by this de- idea of, of how we eat what we eat and mm-hmm. what God is calling us to do here. And I, I just think there's something really beautiful. So first of all, of course, there's the Eucharistic image. You could preach a beautiful sermon on the feast, you know, of the Eucharist. But also just that very, that that first thing that we talked about, about um, what kind of meals are we able to do with our COVID pod and what sort of satisfaction that brings when it's actually taking that time to be together as a community and to support one another. That link between eating together and supporting one another that you referenced, Roger, with if I bring bagels or donuts, it's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, I think back to a time I lived in France in college and my friends, my French friends were going to host a dinner party and they started, the the dinner party was not until nine o'clock that night because they were French and they (laughs) started cooking at 11 o'clock in the morning. They cooked for, they cooked for 10 hours. They made homemade tiramisu and all this kind of stuff. And I remember asking one of them, I said, why are you doing this, all of this work? And he just looked at me, kind of gave me this little half smile and in French said, for pleasure. Uh I mean, it was just this, you know, this concept that like this actually enhances the hard work you do actually enhances the satisfaction, which which also makes me think the hard work that we do to include more people at our table could also even then, you know, begin to expand that, which is is sort of why I love having the end of the chapter in there, because it's all expansive, you know, as the heavens are as high above the earth. My word does not come back to me unfulfilled. You shall go out in joy and be led back in peace and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. I mean, it's just this 
cosmic image, which is yet linked to eating together somehow mm-hmm. at the very beginning of the chapter. And what beautiful layers of, of uh, community there are in this, in this passage. And the context is so grim, as we know, of yeah. Judah in exile, but somehow it, it legitimately turned this recognizing and not minimizing pain and suffering, but inviting to this really luxurious provided arena, which God will give all these things uh, with the Mm -hmm. richest metaphors that you can see. And it's a real, quite a remarkable passage. Yeah. Yeah, you know, this is going to be one of my favorites too, Rachel. You got me. Yay! Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> winner, winner! <laughs> That's awesome. Well, speaking of rich feasts, we have to say thank you, uh, Roger, for and it's been an honor uh, yes. to have you as our special guest. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so grateful for this work. You're giving conversation for all these overworked pastors who are tired and they could listen to you both and Tim talk about the Bible and just give them some creativity, a little catalyst for imagination and how they can address a passage to a particular community of faith. I think that's a real gift to the church. So I thank you three for that. Oh, thank you so much. That's such an honor to hear that. Well, folks, if you liked what you heard this week, there is plenty more over at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there or wherever you like to listen. We also post each episode on Facebook so you can listen and share there as well. If you found this resource helpful, please consider hitting the donate button at firstreadingpodcast.com. Seriously, phone? Hang on one sec. Hello? I hope this makes it to the podcast. (laughs) I'm I'm in the last two minutes of recording the podcast. (laughs) Okay. Yep. Love you. Bye. I'm literally recording right now. I have to go. (laughs) You're on. (laughs) Good Lord. Where was I? Um, Okay. To help sustain the podcast with a one-time or recurring donation. If you're not in a position to contribute now, that's cool. You can also help by sharing the podcast with your friends and colleagues, strangers on the street. You know, they may need this, but especially with the preachers in your life. Many thanks to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a grant that helps us sustain the podcast. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for the music behind the reading. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Rachel Wren. And I'm Rosie Candlethal. Have a great week. (laughs) 